I've got to be clear this morning. What I hope to do is spend just a few minutes to draw out a principle from Scripture, uh, one that we can use to make personal applications that will have community implications, if that makes sense. We want personal applications today. This should be a challenging and, I hope, encouraging message for the few minutes that we're going to spend this morning. The principle is one that we find in every layer of Scripture, drawing on both Old and New Testaments. And the reason that I've chosen Isaiah chapter 6 today is because I find it to be one of the most personal examples of it. That bodes well for personal applications. So I think we can find some clarity and comfort for the world that we're currently experiencing and the community that we're currently in and some of the things that try us and make us anxious and worry us about the present and the future in an unexpected place. But I want to start with a question first. And the question is going to need a little bit of background context and clarity as we speed up. Have you met God? And let me just clarify. I don't mean do you know a lot about God. Most people in here will know something of, if not what they feel like is a lot about God. But what I'm talking about is have you met God? Have you encountered God? Anyone who has encountered God, who has met God, face-to-face, if you will, can tell you exactly when it happened and how, they'll never be the same. You'll remember it forever, and it may happen more than once. As a matter of fact, many of you may have experiences like this multiple times. So I'm asking not just when you found out about God, when you started going to church, maybe when you started to become religious, if you will, when you started to think about these things, I'm asking when did it finally start to come home? When did the weight of his glory come down? When did the magnitude of his grace reach you? Have you felt that? Everything becomes undone. Everything changes. We change. It tears everything down and everything is remade. Let me give you a snapshot of when this started for me. And I say started because this is a continual process, I believe. Uh, I've pretty much always known about God. I thought for a long time that I loved God, but the truth is, As Augustine would say, I had disordered loves. Uh, I grew up in church every Sunday. I had a lot of biblical knowledge about God. I spent a lot of my life trying to figure out how to have everything that I wanted and at the same time walk the line close enough to still be called a quote-unquote good Christian. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Have you figured out how to walk the line and play the game? Young people, I'm talking to you. Old people, I'm talking to you too. Are you still there? Now, there were a couple of dramatic instances in my life that shook me to the core, forced me to change my perspective, change the way that I looked at the world, totally turned my paradigm upside down. There was a tragic car accident that totally changed the way that I looked at life, and few of you probably know that story. Maybe I'll share it at some time in the future, but there were lots of different things that happened that caused me to start to reevaluate what I was doing with my life and how I saw God and my relationship with him and what it meant and whether I actually knew God at all. Now, the story I want to share with you is not quite as dramatic as a head-on collision, but it felt like one. And I'm going to take you all the way back to my sophomore season in college. I'm sitting in statistics class, and my professor is my basketball coach, always an awkward situation, (laughs) and I'm tuned out. And usually I'm tuned out thinking about something that doesn't matter, like 
how the Bulls are going to beat the Heat in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals or something ridiculous like that, something that as long as it was basketball-related, coach was cool with it, but this was different that day. I was totally in another place. And just like always happens when you're in another place in class, guess who the professor's going to come to? He's going to come to you. So as I sit there and I get called out of my daydream, coach says, Stinson, what do you think? Um, I know this happens a lot, coach, but uh, can you repeat that? He said, no, well, Stinson, why don't you repeat for us what you were thinking about since you spent so much time there? Okay. Um, do you think it's kind of wrong that I spend my entire life trying to do good things and be a good person just so that I can get to heaven when I die? I mean... Have I ever done anything good for anyone, actually, or has it all actually been for me? Do we just try to be good Christians so that God can be in our debt when we get to Judgment Day and he can say, yeah, you did pretty well, so you get to go in? Like, are we really as good as, like, is that wrong? Silence. Coach says, Stinson, there's no equation I could put on the board that could solve that for you. But I like the question, so I'll let you think about it while you run extra at practice today. <laughs> Guys, I was in a full-blown existential crisis. Everything that I had ever done, everything that I ever did growing up learning how to carefully walk that line and do the right things, almost always for the wrong reasons, always just thinking, hey, if I do enough and if I'm good enough and if I help this person, if I live this way, if I'm a person of character and integrity, how thinly veiled that was, I'll get to go to heaven when I die. What in the world? Listen, my faith was, as I suspect it is for many, very transactional in nature. And I want to warn you, as long as you have a transactional faith, you are susceptible to the very worst parts of you reaching the surface, if only given the right circumstances and context. As long as you have a transactional faith, you are susceptible to the worst parts of you reaching the surface when you least expect it, only when the right circumstances and context present themselves. So as we step into the lesson this morning, I want to say that I was never really the same. And I think that we all need that moment. I think we need multiples of those moments, no matter how dramatic they are, before we can truly walk as the disciples that we're called to be. And maybe you've never thought about that sort of thing, and maybe you're just starting to right now, and I want to let you know it's okay, it's necessary, you're not alone. Now, Isaiah chapter 6. I love this passage. It is so deep. I find myself coming here for so many reasons. Anytime there's a theophany, anytime that a person encounters God, there's so much that we can learn about our relationship with him, what he wants from us, how much he loves us, and what the gospel truly means. But what I've found is that the surrounding context of what is happening in this encounter is also incredibly rich and deeply important for us today. So I think we can all relate to Isaiah, and I think we all need the moment like Isaiah is about to have in order to navigate our present and future circumstances. Read with me really quick one more time. It says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And with one 
And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I love it when we sing that. Do you guys know that this is the only time that uh, a term like this is tripled up in the entirety of the Old Testament? Sometimes we find doubles, like in Exodus, it'll talk about the gold, gold, to talk about the exceedingly rich qualities of the gold. When things are really bad, it'll talk about the pits, pits. But only when it's talking about the presence of God does it say, holy, holy, holy. It's a way of phrasing a superlative. What Isaiah is saying is something that is incomparable, something inexpressible, something inexplicable, a weight and magnitude and reality that he's never, ever even thought about before. That is the scene. The foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called in the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs on the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, and your sin is atoned for. So first, before drilling down on this a little bit, we need to understand a little bit about the events leading up to it. Because only then can we really grasp what Isaiah is experiencing in this moment and why his identity is completely torn down. In the year when King Uzziah died, what do we know about King Uzziah except that he is regarded as one of the greatest kings in all of Judah? He had a long reign. It was 52 years long. Talk about consecutive terms. It's the second longest in the kingdom's history. And not only did he have a long reign, he had a prosperous reign. In, in fact, it was so successful during his time that his influence and fame spread as far as Egypt. Several vassal states were said to be attributed to the kingdom of Judah at this time. His influence and his prosperity reached heights only ever seen before in the time of the great Solomon. It is said in Scripture that he was a friend of God, that God was with him in life and even on the battlefield. And so God was with Judah. He rebuilt cities. He had victories over the Philistines and the Amorites. And what's more... We can hear everything going great in a prosperous time, but the rumblings beneath as the culture starts to erode from beneath the feet of a great king and a great vision. Everything actually was great until it wasn't because there's this thing that happens to humans when they seem uh, to be blessed that none of us seems to be able to avoid, and that's when we are covered in prosperity, when we're blessed mightily. We seem to always forget where that comes from, and when we do, there's an insidious fast of human nature that wells up inside of us, and that's called pride, and it poisons the whole system. We start to believe it was us, and it's ours, and we did it, and we worked for it, and worse, that every other person on this planet is inferior to us because they didn't. And so, by the time we get to the events that we're studying today, the moral fabric and culture of this nation of Judah had eroded so badly that Isaiah had previously said in the five chapters leading up to this point that it was a society of oppression, a society of violence, and that those who call evil good and good evil are many. He said it was wholly corrupt from the top to the bottom, that they do not regard the deeds of the Lord, that they're utterly estranged from God in Isaiah 1-4, and that even God hates the vain sacrifices they make as they devour one another in tongue and deed, chapter 1 and verse 14. But what is a king, <clears throat> or a president for that matter, but a manifestation or representation of the quality of the people that he represents? See, even this great king Uzziah's reign came to a tragic end. Pride destroyed him as well. In his pride, he ignored direct uh, edicts from God and did things that he wasn't supposed to do in worshiping duties. And as a result, he was stricken with leprosy and rendered unable to attend to his kingly and priestly duties until death. It's not just that he was physically sick and isolated. To under this, understand the depth of what's happening here, you've got to understand that leprosy made you not just physically unclean, but spiritually unclean and ceremonially unclean as well. He could no longer participate in worship. The king was unclean, and so 
he died. The country was unclean, morally bereft, spiritually bankrupt. And to make matters worse, there was a new global power on the rise in the north named Assyria that was leading countries that they captured around by hooks through their flesh, one of the most barbarous people groups that the world has ever seen. And so there's spiritual tension and pressure, corruption. There's economic distress. There's political distress. There's military distress. So there's a sense of impending dread from within and without, a tension over the highest office in the land, and a people that have been described as not capable of hearing the truth. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Are you feeling some of what Isaiah had to be feeling in that moment? Do you feel like this ancient context thousands of years ago is actually so far removed from our experience today and our circumstance today and our present that we wrestle with right now? It's a political crisis. It's an economic crisis. It's a cultural and domestic crisis. It's a spiritual crisis. If you're not feeling the relevance of the situation, Isaiah chapters 1 through 6, then you're not paying attention. So now we come to Isaiah, son of the brother of the king, part of the inner circle. It was an oral culture in that day, and if you were a prophet and you could speak, you had the floor, you had the juice, you had influence, and Isaiah still regarded as the greatest Hebrew communicator of all time. It's a couple thousand years later, and here we are, deep in his word, this very moment. So he's a man of influence, a man with political sway. He could get things done, a prophet of God who's been declaring the word of the Lord for five recorded chapters, declaring everything that's gone wrong with the country. And I want you to know, church, he's not wrong about any of it. But on a day when he probably goes to worship at the temple, he has an experience that he could have never expected. He finds himself face-to-face, encounter with the God of the universe. And I love everything about the way that everything shakes at the appearance of God. Maybe the first thing to consider is that even though Isaiah's entire world felt like it was shaking before this moment, the shaking that he sees and now feels have put everything else back into perspective for him. It's what Isaiah says at this realization that matters so much for us today. Because I think Isaiah was brought to a place that I believe we all must be brought to in life in order to step into God's plan for us. Not just as a people, but as a church, as a community, and as the kingdom. What does he say? He says, woe is me, for I'm lost. (laughs) I'm a man of unclean lips. Hold on a second. It's a prophet of the Most High God. He's been declaring the word of the Lord for five chapters. He's one of the most gifted communicators in Hebrew history. He's telling the truth about a nation that has walked away from God. Why is his first response in the presence of God that, oh no, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. How is it that Isaiah gets in the presence of God, the one who he wants an audience with, the one that he is preaching for, and his response is, it's not just them over there who are the problem. It's me. I'm part of the problem. I'm unclean. Woe unto me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah meets God. He gets in the presence of God, and he realizes that we're all unclean. And what's more, he realizes that the best part of him is unclean. The best thing about Isaiah is that he can speak. And what does he say when he's faced with the God of the universe? I'm a man of of unclean what? Lips. The very best thing I have to offer is unclean in the presence of a holy God. So Isaiah gets in the presence of God. And he realizes that the best parts of himself are fallen and broken. The gifts that we have, even the ones God has been using, we inevitably use for the wrong reasons. Isaiah doesn't just repent for his badness. 
He repents for his goodness too. We're in a season, family, where we're coming back together. Things are getting back to normal, and it's exciting, it's beautiful, it's inspiring. But I want you to know that we are in a season where there's going to continue to be a ton of low-hanging fruit. It's going to be easy to point out the people over there as the enemy or the reason why the country is going down the drain, the problem with everything. And I want you to know that will never end. It's going to be easy to point out all the evils of our time, failed policy, injustices, to call out the things we continue to mess up as a nation or a church or a people. And I want you to know that it could all be true, just like Isaiah's first five chapters were true. But unless you have an encounter with the reality of your place before the God of the universe, our place in front of a God who is holy, 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 you will always be subject to the same madness and deterioration that you see around you. You know what's amazing about this entire ordeal, family? Is that at the moment when Isaiah is at his lowest, when he probably feels the least confident that he ever has before, when he felt inadequate, when he realized before a holy God that all that he had done before was filthy rags, good deeds done for the wrong reasons, when he had come to grips with the reality that the best parts of him were utterly worthless next to God's goodness, it's at this moment when God immediately engages him. And he engages him with an offer to partner in the business of what God is actually trying to do in this world. You see, an angel flies with a coal from the fire on the altar of God, and this almost always in the Old Testament means that something is about to be consumed. So put yourself in Isaiah's point of view and perspective for a second. He just realized how bad he actually is. And now there's a seraphim flying with a coal from the altar of God that's on fire, and he's probably thinking, we had a good run. <laughs> Said my piece. So be it. But in that moment of repentance for Isaiah, in that moment when he realizes his place in this world and his place among his people and his place before God and repents, something strange happens. He's not consumed. It says he's cleansed. Not a consuming fire, a cleansing fire. And his sins taken away. Guys, there's so much here that teaches us about the nature of the gospel, the nature of the gospel we all need to know right now. We need this moment. We need this realization. we got to press in just a little bit further. God's people are in a political crisis, a social crisis, a cultural crisis. And God says to Isaiah, hey, I'm doing a thing, and I want to partner with you, and here are a few details of the plan. Even though the most pressing thing in the minds of your people are political problems, who's going to be king, what they will do, how to defeat Assyria, my plan and my solution for you and my people is not a political one. Also, nobody's going to listen to you. Sound good? Uh, you're going to share a message that they need, but not the message that they want. Anybody signing up for that job? <laughs> but God, if I can't go on political rants on Facebook, what will I do? <laughs> the people need to know. <laughs> listen, fear not. He says to Isaiah, no matter what they do, I will preserve a seed in the stump and you are going to get to be a part of that story. That's what the upcoming context in Isaiah is. You get to be a part of the story that I'm weaving in this world. So Isaiah now, with the correct perspective, no longer needs to speak or preach or teach or prophesy in order to get people to listen or do what he thinks they should do. 
because he's aware of his own need for grace and mercy even more. He doesn't need their validation or their affirmation that what he is saying is right. He doesn't need them to agree. He doesn't even need them to turn their face and walk the other direction. Why? Because he's not in partnership with his esteem or his ego anymore. He's in partnership with God. And when you're in partnership with God, firmly rooted in the fact that God has called him and partnered with him in this mission, he can begin to do the right things for the right reasons. It is God who validates his message. And his psychological, emotional, and spiritual well-being are not connected to what people are saying about him, how people are responding to him, and what they are doing in response to his message. Church, family, can you say at this moment, right now, when you walk back out on Monday, that your emotional, psychological, and spiritual well-being is not at all connected to how people are going to respond to the message of truth that you have, the message of truth that you're walking out. Is your week going to be destroyed as soon as you get in the car and a person does a triple lane change in front of you, as I've found is kind of a Texas thing? <laughs> are you going to step out of grace? Are you going to be the reason that they say, oh, here comes the church crowd to lunch? Are you going to open up Facebook and scroll two times and give up on humanity just like you did before you walked in here and sang, holy, 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 you alone do we praise? Is your esteem connected to how people are responding to you? If it is, it's a sign that you are a member here, but you are not a partner with God and his mission. There's a difference. So before this moment, Isaiah was already a member of God's people, but after this moment, he was in partnership with God and God's mission. You've got to ask yourself right now, are you a member of this local community? Are your gifts and talents in partnership with God and his mission? Membership is great, but it comes with a sense of entitlement. When I'm a member of Sam's Club, I walk up with my membership card, and I don't even feel like I should have to get it out for the nice old lady that's at the door who seems to be upset every single time, and I'm not sure why I'm just coming to get some samples and get out of here. I feel entitled to be able to go in there and shop at wholesale without someone questioning me. Being a member of something comes with a sense of entitlement, but if I'm a partner, I have more invested my blood is in this thing. When Paul writes the Philippians, he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel with him. They were invested with him almost more than any other congregation. And when Isaiah is in the presence of God, God calls him into partnership with him. Partnership is different. When you're in partnership, you're on a mission together. Are you a fellow member with the saints here? Are you in partnership with the saints here? I feel compelled to raise this today just for a second before we finish up. I believe it's valuable and imperative that we begin to seriously consider this together as we come back together in a sense of normality, a basis that we're used to. There are three things that generally happen every time someone meets God face to face. This is a familiar pattern. This is the principle that I'm talking about. It's all through scripture. When God calls a person and they meet face to face, there's an immediate recognition of unworthiness every single time. Second, there's an immediate redemption of the condition of God's power. And third, there's an immediate partnership and mission, the mission that God is working in this world. It happens when Abraham is called. It happens when Moses is called. It happens when Gideon is called. It happens when Peter realizes who Jesus is after the great catch. Peter says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. It happens when Job meets God. He says, I have heard with my ear, but now I see you with my eye and I repent in dust and ashes. It happens with Saul on the road to Damascus. It happens every single time. God's children, when we come into the family today, when we join in community today, are we meeting God? Are we getting connected to God's mission? Are you connected to God's mission? What is the mission of the church anyway? What is the mission of the Christian who's here Sunday by Sunday? 
I mean, is our mission just to faithfully come to church two or three times a week and ride this thing out and hope that we safely arrive at death and one day God will say, yeah, you did pretty good. Come on in. Golden streets and pearly gates. Because I don't see that played out in Scripture. The Scripture has this pattern for building the body. That is when when people come into the church community, when people come in contact with God, their unique giftings, like Isaiah's communication abilities, Peter's leadership, Gideon's might, they're all deployed into the mission of God, into the mission of Christ, not merely shuttled into a row of seats or pews. Are you serious about encountering God here? We can know that this is God's intention for us, the same as it was for Isaiah and Peter and Moses, because even Paul, when writing the Corinthians, and we talked about this several weeks ago, said that now there are varieties of gifts, but of the same spirit. Same Lord, varieties of activities, but of the same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's wisdom, that's knowledge, that's encouragement, that's discernment. This is in the context of the one body with many functions working to bring about the goal. What's the fate of most Christians today? Get baptized and then... <sighs> Hope they don't call on me to pray. I'll do it. I mean, I'll do it. What's our fate today? There are lots of things that we do in the scheme of the service when we gather together, and those things are to be honored and desired, and those things are points of reverence before God, a true privilege before God. But what I'm driving at is that this understanding of what a Christian does falls woefully short of what we find here in Scripture. God always invites his children into partnership with him in his mission for the world. There's so much here for us, church. As the world is coming back together, there's so much opportunity. There's so much talent. There's so many skills. There's so many things for us to do that God is calling us into. We got to unite our giftings and talents together as disciples for the mission of the body. We got to deploy each individual's purpose into the purpose of Christ. Every person in Scripture who encounters God immediately receives a mission rooted in their purpose and gifting. So, what of us now? Do you think that has changed? We as members must become partners, and partners in the gospel need to be together in mission and function. You know, it's wild to me that we're so often encouraged to pursue our talents and giftings to their fullest extent in our secular pursuits, but almost never are we spending the same amount of focus and energy to maximize our talents for kingdom pursuits. A Christian's talents and giftings should not merely be put to use maximizing their secular life. God has a mission for us all. We're in it together. Some of you are great encouragers like Barnabas was, but the only words you'll say to a brother or sister today, you've already uttered on the way in the door with a handshake that said, I'm doing great. Hope you're doing great too. And you're going to be out that door faster than Roadrunner after Coyote chased him down the road. Some of you are great teachers with great commands of Scripture. Some of you are great leaders. Some of you are great listeners, but you can't listen unless you actually have a conversation with somebody. Some of you have so much untapped potential and gifts and talents that God is calling you into partnership with, and we haven't even begun to scratch the surface here. You haven't even begun to consider what God really will do through you. Are you merely a member here? Or are you in partnership with God's mission at McDermott Road? and in this community? Are you a member or are you a partner? Have you met God? So as we close this morning, church, we're faced with this reality. Isaiah experienced a total deconstruction, reconstruction of his own identity. And we all will when we meet God like he did. And Isaiah says the words that we often sing and hopefully we can all say today, and that is, send me. Send me. Church, we ought to all be saying those words 
Have you met God, church? Here's how you know. You believe that you're a sinner, you're broken, and like Isaiah, the best parts of you are fallen. And you understand it's not about the people over there, but that you're part of the problem. And if you have a hard time saying that, it's likely that you're just comfortable being a member and not being in partnership. But even if you can utter those words and you can believe them and you know them to be true, all is not lost. Fear not. Because when you come to that place of repentance, God begins exploding into your life with grace and mercy. And what's more, once you see what Isaiah saw, you might be at the lowest of your lows. Remember and be encouraged that when you are there in that moment, God has a job for you. And the same gifts that you use for good things, for the wrong reasons, God is going to use for the right reasons. And if you've been searching for fulfillment, that's where you're going to find it. God is calling and he's called each and every one of us that are sealed in the name of Christ because just as Isaiah heard the shaking and saw the altar, years later the earth would shake again when the lamb, this Jesus that we sing about, was slain and poured out on the altar for you and for me and for everyone who's called by his name so that you could have the same cleansing atonement that Isaiah had, so that you, like the prophet, could not be held captive by earthly chains and pressures and anxieties and issues. He was there so you could say, woe is me, I am unclean so that you and I and all disciples could meet God face to face in that place. And so God, at that repentance, could say the words that he says to us now, I want to partner with you, I have given you gifts, and I have a plan. Church, are we in? Are you in? I hope that you are. I hope that we will intently, thoughtfully, prayerfully consider partnering our exceedingly great gifts and talents that we all possess with God in this community. I hope we all take seriously our call to steward those gifts to the maximum impact for the kingdom. At this personal level, each one of us individually, keep going. Own your part of making this world what it ought to be. Seek God. Get real about why you do what you do and let God deploy you and magnify your gifts. Don't be discouraged when it doesn't seem that anyone is listening. God has already told us that many people won't, but his word never returns to him void, so you can bet that your efforts will reach those whom God intends them to reach every single time. Church, have you met him? God wants to partner with you. Has the reality of that actually come home? Has it sunk in? Have you met God, church? Are you in? If you need to meet God this morning, one of our shepherds will be happy to assist you at the end of the song that we're about to sing. And if you have met God, but you haven't gone into partnership with him, I know that we would love to pray with you. And I know that we would love to help you deploy and magnify your gifts and talents for this community and this kingdom, because God is calling each and every one of us working together. And won't it be a beautiful future? Won't God do it? We come as we stand and sing.